uh, Joshua 7, 10 through 15. And uh, the background to this passage, this is um, that part where they're coming to the conclusion of why they lost to the battle to this little podunk town of I. Uh, I've heard it pronounced AI, but, uh, you know, I'll pronounce it I. Um, and they're not sure what's going on and why is it that they have failed and where has the power of God uh, gone that had uh, prevailed with them in Jericho uh, just before. And uh, so they are uh, having a, a real sense of consternation and there is worries about what this will mean. Um, here they have, they, they've come into the land and now they've been beaten by this teeny little town and all the rest of the peoples in the country are going to hear about it, Joshua says, and they're going to uh, rise up against them and be emboldened and they'll get slaughtered. And Joshua is basically saying it would have been better that we had not been brought here uh, in light of this. And he's asking God what to do about, uh, what is he going to do about his great name? And they have basically uh, put on sackcloth and they have put dust on their heads and presumably fasted throughout the day. This is a day-long thing. And Joshua and the elders fell on their face. And they were on the ground uh, seemingly all day. They're humbling themselves. And then that brings us to verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban, and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you any more unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel has said, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning you shall not, you shall come near by your tribes and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come near by man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel." So the interesting thing about this is that Joshua is doing a good thing here, as are the elders. They've humbled themselves. They are praying. They're crying out to God. They've put on sackcloth. And the Lord's response is, is interesting. It's startling. It's rise up. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Um, kind of as if to say, what are you doing there? Um, what good is that? Uh, Israel has sinned. There is a problem 
in the camp and that needs to be dealt with and it needs to be dealt with quickly. Um, I will not be with you. I will not help you. I will not support you until that problem is dealt with. And so there's different lessons from the text I think are takeaways here. And one, the first one that that strikes me is that the light and cavalier, what is the big deal about sin attitude is deadly. And it is deadly to us as individuals and it's deadly to the people of God corporately. Essentially because one man and his family and because this one man, Achan, who went out with the, uh, the, the troops and fought, and he saw some things that he wanted, uh, it, he thought it not a, not a big deal that God had said no. Uh, that's a minor. What's the big deal? It's just stuff. You know, it's just silver. It's just gold. It's just clothing. Um, yeah, what's the big deal? Um, you know, we use silver, we use gold, we have clothing. I, I use them anyway. What's, what's the problem here? And there's this attitude of what God says doesn't matter. And, uh, I need to be convinced that the reason for this, I need to be convinced why it's bad. I need to feel emotionally that it's bad before I obey the Lord. Um, otherwise I don't see what the problem is and I can do whatever I want. So it's deadly. It's deadly uh, personally. It's deadly corporately. Um, it resulted in the death of Achan and his entire household, and it, it resulted in the death of several people in Israel. As they went out, they decided this little town doesn't uh, isn't going to require much effort. Let's just send a few thousand out to fight them, and you know, thirty some people died in in, a, in consequence of that. And that's the second lesson is that ignorance of a problem doesn't spare us consequences of a problem. Um, we can, uh, you know, there are examples um, unlimited of situations where not knowing about something didn't, doesn't necessarily spare you from the problems of taking a certain course of action. I may not know that a certain thing is dangerous, but it is dangerous nonetheless, and my ignorance doesn't remove the danger. And so it was with with Israel. They went out to fight. They didn't know about that Achan had done this. Um, it seems that the only one who knew was Achan and his family, and yet they were not spared the consequences of of what he had done. Thirdly, Without disciplinary action towards troublemakers, the church is powerless and cannot hope to prevail over its enemies or prosper. And that is the clear message that God gave to Joshua and the elders. Until you deal with him, I will not be with you. I will not be with you anymore until you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. And then, of course, it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire and all that belongs to him. And so it's, it's very clear that there is going to be no blessing, no help, no power, uh, no progress, no advancement into the promised land uh, until the cancer that is in the midst of the camp is dealt with. 
And so just complete powerlessness. And so we have questions sometimes as to why is there no power in the church? Why are we powerless before this world? Why are we uh, not making any headway? Why does it seem that the evil one and his kingdom is making lots of headway and is advancing continuously and is very successfully making disciples um, by the, the tens of thousands and uh, the, the world and our, our, the societies of the nations from which we all come from are just getting darker and darker by the day. It does beg the question, what is wrong here? Why is there no power? Why is the gospel not going forth with power? Why you know, there are so few converts? And so on. Um, fourth lesson, without disciplinary action, prayer is not the final solution. And prayer cannot be a substitute for disciplinary action. Joshua was praying and the elders were praying, and the Lord's message to him was, rise up. Why are you lying there? And it's not that praying was wrong or that he did something wrong by praying. It's that that was not enough. It's not enough to have a prayer meeting. It's not enough even for us to see our prayer meetings restored um, in churches across our countries where they have disappeared. That's a that's a good start, but it's it's not enough. It it won't be it won't suffice. There are other things that also have to be done, and discipline is one of them. Um, we also see, fifthly, that those who are complicit with sin or who help to conceal the sin of someone else are just as guilty as the one who sinned. Uh, Achan's family should have turned him in. That would have been the appropriate response. His wife, his children, uh, his servants, what, whatever he had in his household, when they saw that he came back and he brought back loot, that they all knew was forbidden and he dug a hole in the ground to bury it, they should have opposed him and stood against him. And they did not, which is why they perished with him. And that reminds me of Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 11, which says, if your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you. From one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not yield to him or listen to him and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterwards the hand of all the people. So it's a public execution. So you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. Oh, in this passage and in many others, it's very clear that family relations are never to come before the Lord. And it's not as though God is first place and, and family is, a, is second and they're a close second. It's not even close. There is 
to be no sense in which the loyalty to loved ones um, uh, trumps loyalty to God and gets in the way of that. Our loyalty to him, our love of him, our devotion to him, our desire to please him must be so exceedingly greater than our desire to please uh, those closest to us and those nearest and dearest to us in this life, that there's no comparison. Um, God expected them to take up stones and be the first one to throw the first rock um, at their loved ones who were trying to seduce them into idolatry. Now, one thing we have to reckon with here, and I assume everybody knows this, but I should probably make it clear anyway, and that is that uh, you know, what has changed and what is not from Old Covenant to New. Uh, the thing that has changed, essentially, is that the church is not given the sword and the church does not carry out the death penalty that's given to the state to do uh, for capital crimes. Um, what has been given to the church to do is church discipline, um, not the death penalty. But God has not changed he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is God who wrote to these things. He is the one who commanded them to deal with Achan this way. He is the one who commanded the Israelites there in Deuteronomy 13 to deal with those who would entice them into idolatry and commanded that they be stoned to death. And it's not that back in those days God was mean and now he's become nice. It's not that back then he was uh, severe towards sin, and today he's pretty relaxed about it. God has not changed, and it's the same principle and the same issue of you cannot tolerate this. Um, it's one thing to be tolerant of one another, as in Ephesians chapter 4, and bearing with one another in those sorts of things, but there are issues that must be dealt with and cannot be simply pushed aside by a quotation of Matthew 7, uh, do not judge and you will not be judged. Uh, that was not in context meant to mean that there is no place for church discipline, since the Lord who taught that also taught about church discipline in Matthew 18. He's not contradicting himself. And in the New Testament, we see Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go and Tell him his fault. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Um, if he doesn't, bring two or more that uh, every fact may be established by two or three witnesses. If he listens, you've won your brother. If not, take it before the church. If he listens to the church, you've won your brother. If not, let him be to you as a pagan and a tax collector, uh, which means in the Jewish context, you have nothing to do with him. Um, you disassociate completely. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 talks about the man who is as his father's wife. So there's an incestuous situation going on here between a man and his stepmother. And the Corinthians are bragging about it, and they're very proud of their tolerant attitude uh, and how they're not judging. And um, Paul says you're, that they're arrogant and that they should have put the man out and that that's indeed what they should do is put him out of the church and not associate with him and not even eat with him. 
Um, in Titus 3, 10 through 11, it says, reject a factious man or a heretic after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Um, in Romans 16, 17 through 18, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. From such, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Second Thessalonians 3, uh, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Second Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So I want to, uh, you know, emphasize this. This is a, a personal thing for me. Uh, since graduating from seminary many years ago and um, serving in three different churches, uh, this has been a persistent issue. There is no escaping it. You either have to resolve that you're going to wink at sin and ignore all of this, or you're going to have to deal with it. And dealing with it is not for sissies. It is not fun. Um, it is, in fact, exceedingly unpleasant uh, many times. If someone listens to you, it's wonderful. But let me tell you from experience, not everybody listens to you. Um, my first church that I came to, it, it was brought to my attention by an elder's wife who really wasn't, um, whose husband wasn't really qualified to be an elder, but, uh, she, and she was a bit of a gossip and she started, you know, talking about a woman that was in the a church member who was committing adultery and basically trying to lure away, um, a man from his wife. And, um, so when I heard that, I was like, well, we can't, uh, we, we need to address this. And so then I brought it to the attention of the other two elders and they didn't want to deal with it at all. And they basically told me that the church was too new and too young to be able to, um, survive such a thing and that no one would understand it. And my response was, well, if, if, if we're too young and too immature and too all that to understand it and to be able to obey the Lord and what he says to do in such situations, then we haven't got much here, have we? And, you know, it's church discipline. I couldn't carry it out single-handedly, but, and it's, it's public now. There's no privacy to it. It's, it's, it's known. And so it needs to be dealt with in a public first Corinthians five, situate uh in a first corinthians 5 manner and uh they they didn't agree and and wouldn't weren't willing to do it and so it became pretty clear that we were not able to work together and i had to look elsewhere and figure out some other place to go um and then um as we were thinking about how to do that and we're thinking about well should we try to start a church and uh, it was just announced one sunday that we would be starting a church and did anybody have any questions? Uh, any questions? Nope. Okay, thanks. Let's pray. And uh, we were gone. 
And um, that was our last Sunday. And uh, our income was cut off by a third in the process. And the Lord took care of us, but it's, uh, what I'm saying is it's not easy. And there are, there's a cost to it. Um, we had the same thing, you know, uh, there's probably been uh, five other cases over a period of 19 years um, at the church here where we're at in Kansas. And in uh, each case has, has not been easy. And, uh, you know, it, I would love to be able to say that uh, don't worry if you practice church discipline, the the troublemaking people if they if they won't listen to you and it comes to that last and final step and you have to remove them from your fellowship as unrepentant people um all will go well and god will actually grow your church and he'll send people to replace them and not necessarily so um or not necessarily very quickly so you you you're forced to wrestle with the issue, do I want people in the pew or do I want purity of the church? Uh, of course, we want both. I would, I would love to have the pews full and I would love there to be purity in the church. But if I have to pick one or the other, um, I'm not going to trade purity for the sake of more numbers. And if you think about that and you think about where we are in our, uh, our country, and uh, in our churches, I'm sure that many of you might resonate with this and uh, may have your own sad tales to tell on this. I, I don't think it's very um, a popular thing to do. And uh, many times you are treated as the troublemaker. Um, it's not the one who, who sins. It's not the Aiken that is considered the problem. It's you who want to deal with the problem who are considered the problem. And, um, I'll close with just one more, uh, one more anecdote here. Uh, a friend of mine was in a church and he was pastoring the church and the woman, I, I don't know the specifics of the situation, but he was dealing with her as in a church discipline fashion. She was the daughter of a pastor of another church and that pastor was incensed and enraged that this other man would dare discipline his daughter. And so he turned against that pastor and uh, spoke very venomously against him. And um, essentially that they, they were belonging to the same fellowship of churches. And the, the one, the one man who was trying to carry out church discipline essentially left the fellowship because they would not deal with it. Um, they just wanted, they took the attitude of it's none of our business. These churches are autonomous. Um, we can't tell them what to do. We just have to butt out of this and stay out of it. And so unfortunately that, that kind of attitude uh, is happened. That's, that's essentially why Aiken's family lost their lives. And it's essentially why Sapphira lost her life. Uh, when she came, there was an opportunity for her to separate herself from her husband, Ananias, and stand on her own. You know that she's going to stand before God someday on Judgment Day on her own, not be there by her husband and be able to blame him for everything that happens in the family. And uh, But she went along with her husband. 
and she uh, she did not do what Deuteronomy 13 would say to do. And uh, so as we think about revival and we think about why do we have no power, as we think about the, the need for the church and the power in the church, this is one thing that we do need. We need purity. And sometimes it means we need to grow smaller before we grow bigger. And it means we need to take the Lord's side in these matters and, and do the hard things and, and be willing to accept the consequences and the cost that comes with it.